0: All right, let's start with a question here for you this morning. <laughs> You're trying to point fingers and blame other people for the fellowship that's still going on over here. Yeah, it's a good fellowship. We love fellowshipping, especially on Easter Sunday. Are you safe? It may sound like a curious question, not an unusual question. If you've been in an area where some kind of Crisis is taking place and you log into Facebook, you may get asked that question. Are you safe? Safety is a big issue. It's not safety culture was a, a, a Name that was born out of the Chernobyl accident back in the 1980s But now it's become kind of a way of life safety culture a secular sociologist who studies fear in human beings recently commented that growing numbers of people feel more and more unsafe much less able to handle criticism and more committed to building quarantines around themselves to protect themselves from perceived threats. Despite a myriad of tools and technologies that are all out there to keep us safe, people feel overwhelmingly unsafe. A poll of 2,000 Americans last year found that 52% feel like they are in imminent danger at least once a day. I can only assume that a lot of those people drive around here. I mean, it makes sense if that's the case. Ages 25 to 34, and that, that number goes to 75% feel unsafe on a daily basis. Are you safe? Now, let me, let me change the question up a little bit. Suppose I asked, are you saved? It's a little different question, and it's one that our, our culture sometimes frowns on. They see this evangelical influence in that question, religious implications to that. What do you mean am I saved? Saved from what? If you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn or scroll to Romans chapter 9. The Bible speaks often of being saved, particularly it ties that to Jesus Christ, the person of Christ and salvation. Because you can go back to when Jesus is in Mary's womb and the angel appears to Joseph and says to him, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus himself says in John 3, 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And Jesus in his own earthly ministry later on pictures himself as the door to a sheep pen and says to his listeners, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. We'll go in and out and find pasture. He's very clear, particularly there in John 10, what he means by that illustration of the door because he immediately contrasts it to one who is an enemy, who is a thief, he describes, who comes to rob and kill and destroy. And so Jesus says, I offer salvation. My enemy brings destruction. On this Easter Sunday, I want to spend a few minutes with you thinking about salvation, the salvation that Jesus spoke of, what it is one must be saved from when he speaks of salvation, and then how this saving is linked to what we celebrate today in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, we spent the last month and a half in Romans chapter 8. It is a virtual inventory of God's kindnesses and blessings to all who trust in Jesus Christ, full of encouragement and reminders of where it is we stand and, and how God is our Father. In fact, the chapter ends with God's promise that nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so there's this glorious end at chapter 8, at the close, and then in the very next breath, the Apostle Paul says this, starting in Romans 9, verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. If chapter 8 was a glorious mountaintop about life in Christ, chapter 9 begins in this valley of sorrow. For all of the blessings that Paul has just recounted, all of the overwhelming goodness of God, he now says he is overwhelmed with anguish because so many of his fellow Jews are separated from Christ. They do not believe in the Savior that he is proclaiming to them to the point that Paul says he wishes that there would be a way that he could trade places with them. Paul says, I wish that I would be the one Cursed away from the presence of Jesus Christ. That's really what verse 3 intends there when it says, I wish that I were accursed and cut off from Christ. It's the idea of a a judgment that separates one, that the curse, the judgment is to be apart from Christ, to be separated from him. That's the condition Paul sees so many of his countrymen in. Ephesians 2.12 tells believers that we need to remember when we were separated from Christ, how we were once without hope and without God in the world. Paul, who had been an enemy, an avowed enemy of Jesus Christ, had been graciously saved, drawn to to Christ himself, and, and brought into that family and redeemed. Now he's having to face countrymen that he loves people that are near to him and, and is just overwhelmed with grief that they are separated from Christ, that here stand those who are in the grip of an enemy who desires nothing but death and destruction for them. And here is a savior who offers them peace. How could they be separated? Next chapter of Romans echoes this sentiment from Paul. If you look at Romans 10.1, It says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Paul was in anguish with a burning desire that the people he loved be saved. Okay? I'm sorry, just making sure. Okay. They were separated from Jesus and Paul knows the consequences are terrible. In this life and the life to come, in this life, there is a a lack of peace and joy and meaning in life, and in the life to come without Christ, they will stand before the judgment of God for their sin. When we gathered Thursday night for communion, one of the songs we sang had a line in it that just struck me as we were singing it. It's about Jesus dying on the cross, and it said, He stood before the wrath of God, shielding sinners with His blood. Jesus as that one standing between us and the wrath of God. Scripture says that, John 3:36, of Jesus, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What a profound warning. The most dangerous place you can ever be. It's not the front lines in a battlefield, not having to walk to your car late at night on an unlit street. It's not even hearing those words from the doctor that says it's cancer. The the most dangerous place you can be is to remain in the same condition in which you enter life as an enemy of God, as one who is not trusting in Jesus Christ and who's not obeying him and who apart from faith in Christ remains separated from him. Because in that place, there is no peace with God. Romans 5, by way of contrast, puts it this way, Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Understand that what he's saying is without Jesus, you are an enemy of God. You are an object of God's wrath and in need of being reconciled to him. That is made at peace with God, with your creator. And so apart from trusting in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, there is hostility between you and the God who made you. And that is simply because God does not ignore sin. God must deal with sin. He is a holy God. Jesus died on the cross to take the, the punishment that you and I deserve. He endured the wrath of God in order to shield us from that wrath, if you will turn to him and be saved. But if you reject him, you are in the most unsafe place you could possibly be. Now, Again, here's the irony that I alluded to at the beginning. For as much as people crave safety, few embrace the Bible's teaching on this salvation. They desperately want to be safe from insults, threats, opposing points of view, from just about anything that might ruin their day. But the salvation that God says every person must have, they desperately need is one that people in Paul's day and in our day, people are running from. They are rejecting that. Why? Why do people turn away from the salvation offered by Jesus Christ? Paul begins to answer that for us. Verse two of Romans 10, he says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. He says, I'm longing for them to be saved. And and I know that they've got this, emotion, this kind of passion, but they lack knowledge. They they think about spiritual things, but they don't think rightly according to God's truth. That's what he means by lacking knowledge. Most of the the people Paul is writing about in this case, first century Jews, believe there's a God. They, they, They do not need to be convinced of the fact that there is a creator God. Many of the people that you talk to today or you encounter, believe that there is something, there's something supernatural, there's something beyond us. They have some kind of rudimentary sense of God, the the the, the second of the 12 steps that many people um, speak of, and when they are battling addictions, as I came to believe in a power greater than myself. It's that sort of underlying assumption that there's, there's someone, something, a longing for spirituality. People often talk about faith in a very generic way. I have faith of some kind another survey last year 71% of americans consider themselves spiritual 85% believe in a god or a higher power the bible does affirm that man has these thoughts because these are innate to us by the way god created us romans 1 describes man as being a worshiping being we are created with this desire to to worship you see that in, from the earliest days in your children when the athlete or the celebrity or the other person that they admire, they wanna be like, they wanna dress like, they wanna follow after that person, they wanna get close to that person if they can. And we carry that on through all of life. We, we crave things, we desire things that we want, that if I had this, if this was closer to my life, just think what my life would be like and how much better it would be. That's, that's worship. That's that inner desire for for something that we we want to put value into in some unique way. And Ecclesiastes 3 also affirms the fact that we have this built-in hunger for believing that there's more than just this life. It speaks of putting eternity in our hearts, and really it's just this picture that man has this innate sense that there's something more. There's something out there. There's something beyond the 70-odd average years that people get on the earth And we ponder that, and yet, sadly, spirituality and generic faith are not the same as God's truth, and people turn to the creation instead of the creator. They ponder these things of worship and life and eternity apart from the purposes and design of their creator God. And so, if you see verse 3 in Romans 10, it says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Here's the next piece of his answer. Why do they not embrace Jesus as savior? First, they, they lack this knowledge of God's truth, but really the glaring way that that shows up is how they perceive right and wrong. How they set that standard for what is good and evil. And the point that he's making here is that, that they derive? They, they seek to derive their own righteousness. They seek to make their own standard. That, that word righteousness is not one we use necessarily in everyday language, but the concept is not new. The, the idea that people want to establish their own standard of right and wrong is what Paul's talking about here. That, this is why so many people will say, I'm a pretty good person. How so? What, uh, based on what? How, how do you judge that? Well, I mean... I'm a work in progress, not perfect. We all, we all caveat that, right? I'm not perfect, but I try to help people where I can. I, uh spouse wants to go to a certain restaurant for dinner, I go along with my spouse. I don't, I don't call my coworkers' names, at least to their face, right? <laughs> well, so do you gossip about them? Well, everybody does. And here's where the, the standard now starts to waver. Everybody does that. Um, do you ever resent the fact that your spouse always wants to go to that restaurant? Well, maybe, but it's okay, you know, I just grumble about it inside. The, the more subjective my standard of right and wrong, the more flexible and generous I can be to myself, that I'm okay, I'm a good person. And so if it comes down to some question of, of I die and I have to stand before someone, I can still say, yeah, I'm not that bad of a person. And that's what verse three is talking about when it says that they are seeking to establish their own righteousness. And the reason that happens is because we don't want to be told what to do. We don't want an external standard that says this is right and wrong. We want to be able to, to do what we want and say, if, if, I, if I want to be selfish, I'm going to be selfish. If I think lying is warranted in this situation and it'll get me out of something, then so be it. If, if this person has done something, then my anger is justified. If this is the person I want to sleep with, I can sleep with who I want. I generally don't want to be told what to do. I simply want to set my own standard. That's why Romans 1 at the very beginning says, we are unrighteous and ungodly by nature, and we battle this notion that there is a law that we are to be held accountable to. And so apart from Christ, what Romans says we do is we keep pushing down, we suppress the truth in more and more unrighteousness. Even though we look around at creation and we see everywhere the fingerprints of a magnificent creator, God, who who brought order to this creation, we quash that, make up lies, and still worship and serve self or the creation around us instead of the creator. That's why the world embraces the notion that there is no all-powerful ruling God who holds man accountable, because if he does, then I'm responsible to him, and there's a holy God that I must answer to. It's much easier to dismiss his commandments as just another archaic set of laws. That's what Romans 10.3 is talking about. I'd rather pick and choose from a menu of so-called spirituality, the things that I want to believe, accept, be under, than to put my faith in a holy and righteous God. I'd rather have one of my own design. Problem is the Bible continues to emphasize that there is a creator, there is a wise, powerful, loving, just, self-existent, eternal God who made this universe and everything that is in it, which means then he has the right to rule it. It's his. And he can establish the the do's and the do nots. We don't get to be little gods who decide what's right and wrong. Our creator has, has done that. And he's not vague about right and wrong. He's very clear because it already speaks of the righteousness of God. He is a holy God. His standard is perfect. And none of us will ever be good enough to meet his righteousness. In fact, Paul will go on in this passage and particularly in verse 5 we'll speak to the person who says, okay, okay, fine. So there is a God. So I'm just going to be good enough to please him. And what Paul goes on to say in in, in verse five is, listen, if you're going to take God's law and obeying God's law as the standard, here's what God says, be perfect. You, You must keep it entirely all the time. That's the only standard because anything short of that is breaking God's law. And Jesus affirms this. If that sounds old and archaic, remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, hey, I know you all are thinking about God's law and you have this view of God's law that it's primarily about words and actions. It's primarily about the stuff that goes on externally. And what does Jesus do? He says, I wanna tell you, God's law applies to your heart. And so if you are churning with anger at that neighbor of yours that just is the one making noise at all hours of the day and yet, I will not say anything to that neighbor, and yet inside you want to kill that neighbor. That's sin. That's what Jesus says, that that anger is still sinful because God sees your heart. If you are lusting for sexual sin, even if you're not acting on it, God says the desire itself is still sinful. If you seek to live by your own standard of righteousness, you will ultimately be judged by God's. And that's why Jesus at the end of that section in Matthew five forty-eight, says, therefore be perfect even as your father in heaven is perfect. And there we are back at that point of saying, well, I'm not perfect. I know I'm not. Amen. And that's when Romans then goes on to say that the judgment for our sin is death. God's prescribed judgment for our sin, Romans five twelve: sin came into the world through one man, death through sin and death spread to all men because all sinned. The first man created by God, Adam, Sin enters the world through him. We all descend from him and we inherit his same nature of rebellion and our actions and thoughts and desires go with that nature and the consequence of our sin is death. At this point, if you're saying, wow, Doug, this is a real happy Easter sermon. (laughs) You've thought about it just in time because here, let me encourage you. This is why around the world, Followers of Jesus Christ today are singing and rejoicing why our joy is boundless and our hope is limitless because our God has made a way to save sinners. Our God has provided the means graciously to rescue sinners. But that's why the salvation that Jesus Christ offers is so crucial. That's why Paul is agonizing in his heart at at ethnic brethren who are not believing in Jesus because he understands there is a way. There is salvation that Jesus, when he died on the cross, took our sin on himself and became that substitute that died in our place so that we do not have to bear the wrath of God. Jesus met the Father's requirement for perfect obedience in his life and therefore is the sinless sacrifice that can pay for it and receive the wrath of God and cover our debt of sin. And so that the call for you and I now is not trying to earn our way into God's pleasure, perform our way somehow, it is to believe. And that's what Paul says if you look down at verse nine, Romans 10, verse nine, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Here it is. Here is salvation. Here is eternal safety. Earlier in Romans, it said that the wages of sin, what we earn for sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Deliverance from the death our sin deserves was accomplished by Jesus Christ in his dying on the cross. And so Romans ten nine now can say, God requires two things of you. Both are rooted in faith not in performance, but in faith. He commands belief and he commands confession. The belief is about what we're celebrating today, to believe that Jesus Christ, as he said he would, not only died, but rose from the grave. His death is crucial. It is in his death that he provides atonement, that he satisfies the wrath of God but it is his resurrection that proves that his death made atonement for our sin. It is the fact that Jesus Christ is raised from the grave that affirms that what he did on the cross when he said, it is finished, was indeed the price that was paid for our sin and it was paid in full. If Jesus Christ remained dead, No one's sin would be paid for. We would not be here this morning or any other Sunday morning. There'd be no reason to. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But because Jesus Christ rose, we know that God's full and just wrath was satisfied in him. And in his death. And so believing in the resurrection is to believe that Jesus Christ came, lived a sinful life, submitted himself to be crucified on a cross and in doing so bore our sin on the cross and he died, was buried and then rose to eternal life, rose to conquer sin and death. Along with believing in the resurrection, the other command he says is confession. To confess Jesus as Lord. To confess is to openly acknowledge that Jesus is who he says he is. That's really what this means. With to confess Jesus as Lord is to take Jesus's word in the gospels. And when Jesus says, this is who I am, it is to say, I believe this is who you are. And so when Jesus Christ says, I am the light of the world and if you do not walk in me, you walk in darkness, then we say, that's what Jesus says. And Jesus says, I am living water, and I am the only one who can eternally satisfy the thirst of your soul. We believe that Jesus is who he says he is. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, when he claims to be eternal, before Abraham was, I am. Abraham, 2,000 years ago, he and I hung out together. I, I, I was there because if you've seen me, he said, you've seen the Father. To confess Jesus as Lord is to believe and confess these truths. Jesus of Nazareth made no qualms about claiming to be the sovereign master of creation before whom we will all face judgment. Jesus even says, the father has put all judgment in my hands. It is to believe that he is ultimately the judge of all of humanity. And it is to confess when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. It is to believe that that is true and to confess that Jesus is indeed the resurrection and the life. Whatever you do with Jesus, do not rationalize him down to some kind, sweet teacher who did nice things and then sort of showed us how to, showed us how to love and then sort of moved off the scene. That denies what Jesus said about himself. Jesus came and claimed to be Savior and Lord, the one who must be bowed to, and you either confess that or you will face him in judgment. Some of you may have watched, I I did this past week, the um, Netflix series on on Waco. Uh, If you're not familiar, it's it's, the... several episodes, that kind of walk back through the cult that was in Texas, in the, outside of Waco, Texas in the 1990s, and the, the leader of that cult who claimed to be God's chosen. David Koresh was, was neither good nor powerful, but he was manipulative and persuasive in the evilest of ways and made claims of being like Jesus. But David Koresh died in April 1993 and took a lot of people with him. And despite all his claims, he did not appear again. He did not rise from the ashes. He was just another evil lunatic who lived and taught and died. Jesus Christ, when he walked on the earth, said to his followers that he would be put to death that he was going to Jerusalem and he was going to be turned over to the Romans there and that he would be crucified, much to his disciples' consternation and opposition. Jesus said, I am going to die. And then he told them that this this body, this temple, as he called it, that is brought down in death will be raised again on the third day. And he did. Jesus Christ rose. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 through 6 says then, recapping the gospel, says Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And it's not just here, it's even in the historical records of Josephus, secular writer at the time who says, I've got these Christians who are saying they've seen him alive. They've, they've, they give testimony of seeing Jesus after his crucifixion alive. We, we know one of those stories from the Gospel of John, one of the followers of Jesus, one of the disciples who wasn't there for the earliest appearance of Jesus. And the others tell him, Thomas, he's alive, brother. We've seen him. And what does Thomas say? I don't, I don't believe that. Unless I see him myself and touch his hands where the wounds are and even touch his side It's not just the hands and feet, but the interesting thing about the crucifixion of Jesus is the spear in the side. Most were left to hang there until they died. Jesus was already dead, and the spear was just to confirm that. And Thomas says, I I want to see that wound. I want to be able to put my hand there. And what does Jesus do when he appears to Thomas? Touch, feel, Don't, don't don't be disbelieving any longer, Thomas. And Thomas sees Jesus and says, my Lord and my God. Church tradition tells us Thomas went on to India from there, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ until the point that he was ultimately martyred. He and the other disciples, one after another, went on to proclaim the risen Christ and all suffered for it. Uh, The the only one that we have any record of that might have lived to old age did so in exile, and that was John on the island of Patmos, and all the rest were killed in some way, persecuted in some way for their faith. If, If it was not true, that Jesus Christ died and rose again, it would be one of the longest running, most foolish charades there has ever been. The, the reality is that the, the, the church scholars tell us that over the last, over the 20th century, Christianity grew in more numbers, more people following Jesus Christ in the last century than in all of the previous centuries combined. And they also say that more Christians were martyred for their faith in the 20th century than in all of the previous centuries combined how absurd would it be that we would carry on with this preaching and suffering and persecution in the name of a guy who died 2,000 years ago if he was never heard from or seen again. But he is risen. He is risen. Our Savior lives. Jesus rose. And my friend, salvation, if it is not already, it can be yours today if you will simply confess to him, I'm a sinner, I admit I've sinned and I believe Jesus that you took my sin on yourself on the cross and died in my place and I'm asking for your forgiveness, I trust in you if you will believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess Jesus as Lord, you will be saved would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that today for some, whether here or listening online, that today would be the day when they would come to a place of you opening their eyes, causing them to see this truth, causing them to come to the place of saying, Lord Jesus, I, I believe now, I trust in you. Lord, would today be the day that you would graciously save sinners? Lord, thank you for the precious news of the gospel, for demonstrating to us through the scriptures how unable we are to save ourselves, how sinful and helpless we are and how much we are in need of a Savior. And thank you for providing that Savior, your Son, Jesus. And Lord Jesus, our thanks seems so much of an understatement to acknowledge the the depth of gratitude in our being for your rescue. Thank you for humbling yourself to come to earth as a man and to give yourself in obedience to the Father's will, even to the point of death on the cross, the shame And the pain the suffering and the wrath endured for all that is ours. Lord Jesus, we love you and thank you. And I pray, Lord, that as a body of believers here in Lorton, that we would be those who would respond to the call, that we would be ambassadors of Christ, constrained by his love, pleading with others, be reconciled to God. There is a a loving and gracious Savior who's also just. And we appeal to you that you would turn to him and find hope. Lord, we pray all of these things. This great day when we commemorate the resurrection and ponder the, the reality that our Savior lives anew. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.